Greetings, listeners. This podcast you're about to listen to is brought to you by the Network in Canadian History and Environment, a not-for-profit public history organization that publishes new research on the intersection of nature and history in Canada. They publish blogs, research articles, newsletters, and this very podcast you're listening to. And they can't do it without your support. If you enjoy listening to this podcast and all the great work of the Network in Canadian History and Environment, consider becoming a supporter today. Head on over to niche-canada.org support and make a donation. Finding animals in the archives, reading new sources, and exploring new methods in animal history. A roundtable discussion about the new edited collection, Traces of the Animal Past, Methodological Challenges in Animal History. I'm Sean Karaj, and you're listening to episode 76 of Nature's Past, a podcast of the network in Canadian history and environment. Elephants, horses, dolphins, and bears have stories to tell about the past. Their lives and actions shape history and influence the lives of people in innumerable ways. How can these histories that animals made be studied and understood? This is the question at the heart of a new book edited by me and my colleague Jennifer Bennell called Traces of the Animal Past, Methodological Challenges in Animal History. Across 17 original essays, the contributors to this collection wrestle with the many ways that historians strive to understand the history of animals. The book showcases innovative methods to unearth and explain how animals fit into our collective histories. The book is the outcome of a conference that we held at York University in 2019. It was published earlier this fall by University of Calgary Press. It's available now as an open access book. Please take a look for the link in our show notes for this episode. To give listeners a better idea of what you'll find in this book, I sat down with some of the contributors to discuss their chapters and some of their bigger ideas about the field of animal history. I was joined by Jennifer Bennell, Colleen Campbell, Jason Colby, Tina Liu, Lindsay Stallones Marshall, and Catherine McNair. Well, thank you so much, everyone, for joining us for this big roundtable discussion about uh, this wonderful new book, Traces of the Animal Past, Methodological Challenges in Animal History. I am joined by uh, Lindsay Marshall. Hi, Lindsay. Hello. How are you? And uh, we've also got Catherine McNair here. Hey, Catherine. Hi, Sean. And we've got Jason Colby joining us from the West Coast. Hi, Jason. Hi, Sean. And we're joined also by Colleen Campbell. Hi, Colleen. Hi, Sean. And of course, my co-editor, Jennifer Bennell, is with us. Hi, Jennifer. Hi, Sean. Pleasure to be here. So uh, I thought we would maybe start off by going over um, the chapters that you contributed to this collection. There are 17 original essays in this collection. We don't obviously have every author here with us today, but we've got a good sample of them. And uh, maybe we'll start with Lindsay. Uh, if you could give us a, a bit of an overview for the listeners about your contribution to the collection. Absolutely. Um, so I wrote a chapter called Hearing History Through Hoofbeats. And uh, it comes both from my work on U.S. West history, particularly on the wars for westward expansion uh, against Indigenous nations here in the United States in the late 19th century, but also from a lifelong obsession with horses and uh, a lot of experience riding horses. Um, I always remembered reading about cavalry battles, for instance, and wondering why the horses magically did what was asked in that intense situation, when that has not been my experience in far less tense situations than battles. Um, so what I tried to do with this chapter was figure out how I could construct an analytical lens to look at the battle through the horse's eyes insofar as we're able to do so. And that involved consulting indigenous knowledge, consulting, um, you know, kind of far reaching uh, European knowledge about horses going all the way back to our good friend Xenophon, and really concluding that um, horses are intensely relational, and they're incredibly expert communicators. And so starting with those two assumptions, 
I re-examined a few episodes in U.S. West history involving horses to see if that would raise new questions um, by putting the horse in the center of the action. That's great. And it's uh, it's one of uh, at least a couple of horse-centric chapters in the book. Yes, um, equines are well represented. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Uh, Jason, why don't you go next? Uh, just let listeners know what your chapter is all about. Yeah, I, so I, I wrote a chapter called Tuffy's Cold War, Science, Memory, and the U.S. Navy's Dolphin. And uh, I use as, as uh, sort of the, the, the central character of this chapter uh, a... Um, uh, a dolphin that, that the U.S. Navy acquired for its marine mammal program in the early 60s um, and, and to some degree try to explore a bit of his biography and at least, you know, uh, uh, at least an, an attempt at, at exploring what his experience might have been like, um, you know, being conscripted into, into the U.S. Cold War. Um, but but I'm also, I also really use this to explore... Um, how human beings are are affected emotionally by these by these uh, encounters with uh, especially captive animals and how that influences memory and 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 both the um, the possibilities of exploring uh, these encounters uh, through oral history but also the the real challenges um, especially with the passage of time and how context uh, shifting you know social context changes the way we remember and and you know, form narratives about our, our our encounters with with dolphins and so a lot of what i'm trying to do is um to be blunt um put on the table the limitations that i've encountered um in in not just archival but oral history with with understanding you know how to some degree how animals experience their their you know close interactions with us but also how human beings try to make sense of this um especially you know as they as they try to sort of fit them within the other um, emotional experiences of their lives. Yeah, I really like this chapter. It's almost like uh, engaging with the human animal's memory of other animals. Um, uh, Colleen, uh, you've got a rather large uh, creature at the heart of your chapter mm -hmm. that you uh, co-wrote with Tina Liu. Uh, why don't you tell listeners a little bit about those grizzly bears? Well, our our chapter is called Making Tracks, A Grizzly Bear and Entangled History. Um, and it started with my project trying to tell the history of individual bears and an intent to try and share what I understood of bears from field work, that they're, in, that they're distinctly individual and that we relegate not just bears, but all animals to fit a natural history that we create about them. So they all become anonymous clones of each other. And when Tina encountered my work and was invited by you and Jennifer to be part of this conference, we asked if we could collaborate and I could bring all the data that I had privileged to from the Eastern Slopes Grizzly Bear Project and my understanding of it to mesh with Tina's understanding from environmental history and animal history to write a chapter about bears and through bears, maybe to try and give individual animals that we don't live with and don't encounter in an intimate way, um, some agency to be their own creatures. There's Tina. Yeah, perfect timing. Yes. Tina, we're just uh, doing an overview of your chapter as well. Great. Can you hear me? We can hear you just fine. Yes, we can. I had to switch. I had to switch computers, and now I'm on this laptop. Good thing we're not doing a video because it's got a beautiful view underneath my chin. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can hear you just fine, Tina. Uh, Colleen was just giving us an overview uh, of your chapter. Wondered if you wanted to add anything um, in terms of what what got you thinking about grizzly bears and uh, thinking about animals as individuals. Um, I don't know what Colleen said, but what got me thinking about grizzlies was living in Canmore and seeing Colleen's um, exhibit uh, at the White Museum of the Canadian Rockies on, on um, a visual representation of the data that we used to um, as the basis of our chapter. So in Canmore, we live with grizzlies 
and uh, they're omnipresent. They're in the news all the time. And I think I wrote a blog for Niche about Bear 148, the female bear that was was uh, was captured and then relocated and ultimately uh, died as a result of that relocation. Saw Colleen's uh, art exhibit and thought, wow, there's a 10-year series of, of grizzly bear movements. I wonder what else could be done with this data. It, the, it's data that tracks a, his, a set of historical animals. So that's really what what uh, captured my imagination. And of course, at the time, I thought, I don't know what to do with this data. And I, which is why I told you initially, I don't really have anything to say about animal history until I talked further with Colleen. And it's a wonderful chapter. Uh, highly encourage readers to take a look at that one. Uh, and hopefully you're starting to get a sense of what this collection is all about. Now, we've gone from horses to dolphins to bears. And now we're going to talk about some very tiny creatures. Um, <laughs> Catherine, maybe you can start us off uh, and let listeners know about your chapter uh, about flies. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, yeah, my, my chapter is called Vanishing Flies and the Lady Entomologist. And I came at this um, not at first through the flies, but through the entomologist, because I'm writing a book about these two women in the 19th century who've um, been erased, 19th century scientists. Margaret O'Hare Morris is an entomologist and her sister, who's a botanist. And um, in 1836 and 1837, Margareta started researching wheat flies that were devastating wheat fields around Philadelphia and then all throughout the United States and, um, and Canada as well. Um, and economically, this was a serious pest that was uh, it, um, really affecting the, um, the, the economy um, because flour was becoming an insanely expensive um, during the panic of 1837. So there was a, a significant reason for this research that she was doing in the field. And um, everybody assumed there was just one fly at the heart of it all, the Hessian fly. But Margareta discovered that there was another fly that was behaving quite differently. The, um, and during her lifetime, nobody believed her. They, uh, they saw that she, she, they believed she wasn't, didn't know what she was talking about. Um, and so she was being written off. And then in the centuries after her death, she was erased. But so um, getting involved with this conference was really great because I was able to center the fly in the story and think about how not only this woman was erased and her work was erased, but because of her erasure, we know so much less about this fly because um, she, this citation track, she was uh, erased over time and people just lost track of what this fly was. It was named at one point or she named it, um, but then everybody started to think that this was just a mistake. And so it was only... Uh, interesting but not uh entomologically relevant anymore and it happens to be yeah, there's a whole like something like entomologists now say there's something like uh, 16 million of this certain kind of fly sesodomia and only a small handful have names and we know less about this fly because of this uh, archival erasure of the entomologist herself so because of these power structures and the archives um we we've lost track of an animal too it fits so well in the collection and ties into so many of the themes of the other chapters about different ways of knowing animals and constructing knowledge about animals in their pasts, uh, which is the challenge for all animal historians. Um, Jennifer, maybe we'll turn to you for the the last of the chapter summaries here and and tell us about the the small animals in uh, in your chapter. Sure. I so love it that we have two chapters on insects in this book. Um, my chapter is called Occupational Hazards honeybee labor as an interpretive device in animal history. So it is quite deliberately playful in thinking about, you know, we talk about worker bees, right? We talk about honeybees as workers. And um, it was really Dolly Jorgensen's intervention that got me thinking along these lines of thinking about honeybees as laborers themselves within really changing um, work environments. So, um, changing work environments in, in 19th and 20th century, Great Lakes region, Canada and the United States. So I'm working with, with records from um, beekeeping associations and beekeeping journals uh, through the late 19th and early 20th century when those, those journals were extraordinarily active. And there was a, a very big um, cross-border dialogue between beekeepers in, in Canada and the United States. I look at three kind of occupational hazards uh, that 
honeybees and their keepers faced over this time, the first and largest being insecticide poisoning due to the use of copper and lead arsenate, particularly on fruit trees. I look at it at the rise of infectious disease in this period as not only agriculture, but beekeeping, apiculture, um, was also in, going through an industrial phase of um, a, lot more, a lot more bees and therefore a more susceptibility to disease. And the third sort of site that I look at for occupational hazard is, is changing forage conditions. So with, with the modernization of agriculture in this period, um, less exposure to uh, wildflowers, changing access to bloom in different periods. And I look at the effects of these changes on honeybees and on their keepers in terms of the responses they uh, work towards collectively to address these threats to their livelihoods. So bees in this, in this chapter become kind of the nexus between changing environments and um, people who had intimate relationships with those environments through their bees. So I hope listeners get a sense of some of what was tying the chapters together in this collection and the core idea for the conference that then became the book. Um, and I'll stay with you, Jennifer, here to, to ask you um, why we chose methodology as a as a hook for uh for the conference and for this book uh, and and why methods in animal history okay thanks sean well i think um both you and i had at various times been teaching courses in animal history at york so this was something that was present in our minds and something that was really captivating our students i think as, as a new approach to thinking about the past and one that we were certainly seeing a lot of burgeoning scholarship in. So there was certainly some excitement around thinking about animals as a way, I always think about it as, a, as really a way to understand ourselves as a species in relation to other species. So as a way to understand human behavior in the past and human experience. Um, I think we're especially interested in, in approaching this question of, of methods because there's obviously a real challenge at the heart of writing the history of human-animal relationships and only one set of those, um, of those species leaves any records. So how we really you know, wondered in our own practice um, of working on animal history, but we both had projects on the go, of how people are, are approaching this conundrum and we talked about this, this sort of problem at the heart of this, of this uh, tendency towards a kind of clumsy ventriloquism, as we talk about in the, in the introduction to the book, mm -hmm. uh, in terms of that attempt to see the past through the eyes of animals and the real limitations of that. Uh, and so we were very curious how other historians, not only across North America, but around the world, as this collection really demonstrates, were grappling with that question of how far do we take this? I think we also had seen the early phase of, of animal history as it was um, developing as a field, being really focused on questions of agency um, and identifying agency, you know, as really, you know, that that would be the end point of that investigation is that we'd identified animal agency, at least in my, uh, in my um, interpretation of some of the, the early works. And we, I think we're both hungry to see the field move beyond justifying its existence based on, okay, we've identified animal agency, um, to move beyond that and accept agency as, as both self-evident in animal species, um, you know, across the spectrum and insufficient as, as an analytical mm. approach. So um, we wanted to see it be the start rather than the conclusion of an argument and I think the essays in this collection really take up that, um, that central challenge. We also wanted um, to find, explore different kinds of sources and hear what other historians were, were doing in terms of innovating around um, working with sources and source types in animal history. And I think this collection demonstrates how historians not only are creating sources of their own through oral history, as, as Jason talks about in his chapter, through the GIS projects that Andrew Robichaud and, and Sean, your chapter, demonstrate um, in, in 
chapters like Susan Nance's, which really looks at creating an archive from the web to document the experience of, of greyhounds and their keepers. So I think um, there was just so much to explore here. And the conference showed us that these conversations people were really excited to have. And, and so I think choosing methods really found a way to bring us all together. I can't, you know, choosing monkeys, would that have been better? I'm not sure. I think choosing methods was the way to go. Yeah. I mean, the only thing I would add to that was, um, was also the exhibit at Archives of Ontario, um, uh, Animalia, uh, which uh, as it was being developed, Jen, one of uh, a student who had taken a class with both you and me was working with Jay Young on the development of the exhibit. And in the process of creating the exhibit, they were going through a lot of the methodological challenges that animal historians go through in terms of finding sources in an archive that pertain to animal history and where do you look? And I remember uh, early in the development of that exhibit, um, they were struck by the extent to which, you know, the vast majority of the sources that they were able to find came out of um, areas of the exhibit related to economic and agricultural history uh, or of the archives to economic and agricultural history. And then that raised all these questions about the way in which people construct archives and how that structures our knowledge about animals in the past. Um, So the question, I guess, for the rest of the panel then is what drew you to this conference and this collection? Um, Lindsay, I don't know if you want to start um, on this one. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean... Horses are everywhere (laughs) in our history and particularly, you know, the time periods that I study. And what I was really interested in, I I realized as I was researching that I just didn't have the space to think carefully about these methodologies. I, my focus is typically on public memory and where our, you know, kind of narrative constructs come from. And uh, the history that I look at in particular in the late 19th century U.S. West involves a lot of the construction of stereotype about indigenous people that then justified, um, you know, seizure of land and things like that. And um, I realized that the horses were doing a lot of memory work and the rich literature that exists about the impact of horses um, on the landscape, um, their military importance, their political importance, um, their ecological importance, um, all those things. Um, was really only through the framework of a very Eurocentric settler scientific understanding of horses. And it did not take into account um, horses as relations, uh, which is a a completely different way to think about it. Um, So I was really excited about the opportunity to think hard, and especially in the context, uh, the way the conference was structured, where we had multiple respondents to each paper. Um, So it was actually a conversation where we were all working on these different areas of methodology in trying to figure out how do we do this well, Um, that we had this kind of communal effort to it. It wasn't just me floating off on my own, trying to think about horses in a different way. Uh, Tina, what about you? you? You said you initially thought you had nothing to say and to add to the conversation about animal history yeah. methods, and, and yet clearly, you showed up. <laughs> clearly, that changed. Um, I yeah. was attracted to this conference because I knew that There was something, there must be something that animal historians could have to say about this this data set. And so partly I was drawn to it as a a way of challenge, challenging myself to to grapple with what it really meant to decenter humans and, and to tell a different kind of history and to be with people who were, I, I was new to animal history, to be with people who were much, much more immersed in that literature and to begin to have those very rich conversations uh, about how you write animal history, how you write a history that is um, not anthropocentric, but can center animals. And I think um I was drawn by the spatial work that that Andrew, you and Andrew did. I also, you know, just was attracted to bringing together the humanities with uh, scientific literature about animal behavior, mm-hmm. which is not historical, right? I mean, that's the challenge mm-hmm. for us is, does the historical animal exist and how do we get at it? Uh, scientists are dealing with animals in the present. They can monitor, they can, uh, they can watch themselves. They have firsthand observations. We don't always have that. But yet this set of, 
this this set of uh, locational data offered the possibility mm-hmm. of doing that. So I was really interested in um, I'm interested in storytelling and so and how all of you were approaching that question of how we tell stories about animals. So it was really the challenge, and I think it was just such a rich. Um, set of people and methods. The diversity was what struck me and uh, I came away learning a lot. I, I didn't put into practice everything that I learned, but I, I, I was inspired um, certainly by lots of references to other literature. And, and Colleen and I came up with um, what we came up with, looking at um, actions instead of events thinking about history in terms of embodiment. How do we practice a kind of critical empathy in understanding non-human animals and and doing that without uh, anthropomorphizing in uh, an uncritical way? So it's really the methodological challenge, which I see as as a kind of rich edge of a historical inquiry right now. So this is a nice segue into the next thing I wanted to ask about. Um, and Catherine, maybe you can uh, answer this um, about the takeaways from the conference and and how it shaped your research. You mentioned that you your project um, is is concerned with sort of the biographies of these two women, um, and there's a fly involved in this story. So uh, did you did you take anything away from the other papers or the comments and feedback that you got on your chapter? Yeah, you know, I, and even this kind of um, piggybacks on what Tina was just saying. When I first encountered this fly in the stories, I was trying to figure out what is its modern equivalent. Like if, if that name died off, maybe it has a new name now. And so I had reached out to all these agricultural entomologists now um, at various universities who specialized in that. And I was like, here's a description of this fly. Can you tell me what this fly is? And they'd be like, I think it's this, maybe. Or you might check out this book. But um, coming to this conference, it allowed me to recenter it because it was making me think about the archive itself. I, I started tracing out the, the footnotes that various entomologists, um, French entomologists, uh, American, Canadian, were using in various government reports about flies because it was you know, economically significant. And how her, Margareta Morris's um, fly would gradually disappeared from the, the citations hmm. or how it was destroyed in the archive by other insects that went and, and consumed it. And so I started thinking about like, it might not, we might not have a name for it now. It, it doesn't exist. The entomologists at the University of Nebraska don't necessarily know what this fly is. Um, I have to like let go of that and instead think about the archive itself and what it can contain what it can tell us about animals, or in this case, not tell us um, just because of the various erasures over time. And so, yeah, so the the conference and my needing to pause and think about my the archive itself was um, allowed me to expand it. And then also, I now have taken that on to, it has influenced the book that I'm writing. And I've looked at the erasure of the peach bark beetle and how it, its knowledge of this, this one beetle um, came and went and another a potato bug um, that was also uh, occurring in the mid 19th century and taking well, during the big potato blight um, and how people knew about it and didn't know about it and the trusting of a woman entomologist or the, the distrust uh, affected um, response times uh, to these creatures. It, it your your work reminds me a bit too of um, work in the history of medicine and the study of historical diseases for very similar challenges of being able to make claims to what a disease was in the past because we're only seeing it through how people defined it or described it or diagnosed it. Um, so if you know somebody had influenza in eighteen seventy we don't know exactly what that is, right? The way that we might at a molecular level study a microorganism. So really interesting parallels there too. Um, Jason, what about you? What what were you able to take away from the conference and, and how did it shape your approach to, to animal history? Well, I, I'll start off by saying I have really fond memories of, of that conference, partly because it's the last sort of in-person, uh, you know, academic event I got to, we all, many of us got to do for a long time, right? And so I, I think about it as sort of this lovely moment in the before times um, when we could actually see each other in person. Um, I, you know, uh, for me, there was, there were multiple sort of attractions to come to this, uh, to, to this workshop or this conference. Um, you know, one of them is, you know, I was, I was, when I was trained, there was, a, there was, there was no 
an environmental historian in my program. There was there was certainly no sense of uh, animal history as a potential field, and so I really you know got trained in an area that was you know quite different, you know, entirely archival, um, you know, really focused on, you know, only human sources. Um, and so as I sort of came to redefine myself as an environmental and an animal historian, um, it opened up a whole world for me where I sort of felt like I was coming home or coming to, or come, stumbling toward becoming the, the kind of historian I wanted to be. Um, and so that's a long way of answering the question, but, but you know, when coming to this, um, conference and enable me to really think more explicitly about methods that others use um, in, in a way that I don't tend to in my own work. I mean, I tend to be quite a an interdisciplinary instinctive researcher, but I don't necessarily uh, formulate quite clearly to myself, you know, what my particular methodological approaches or tools are. And it was really useful for me to to have the opportunity to just listen to others, many of whom are, were much more um, explicit and and focused in their methodological approaches than 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 I am, and so, I mean, I came away from that uh, humbled to some degree uh, about how clearly many colleagues think about these methodological questions with animals. Um, I came away even further convinced, and certainly Colleen and Tina's work is a piece of this for me. You know, I. I comes from sort of a scientific family. And so the, the integration of, of scientific literature, um, uh, scientific research is, is natural and really important to me. Um, but I came away from presentations like theirs thinking, you know, I could push that even further. Um, hmm. But also, I, I would say that, you know, I've tended to focus on charismatic megafauna, and, and um, which, which tends to you know, not it's it's just as impenetrable to get into their experience as it as it is to a fruit flies, but um, they tend to leave often sort of really evocative uh, uh, memories and experiences on people that that I would say in some ways make the research and the writing easier. I, and so I, when I say I came away humbled, I you know watching uh, presentations like and you know reading pieces like Jennifer's and and, and others, I just thinking. Um, Wow, this is really this is extremely creative, brave uh, work to to be sort of trying to ask these questions and explore uh, in this way with animals that aren't necessarily thought of as you know your your charismatic uh, megafauna that that sort of create these often ready made stories. And so, um, mm -hmm. yeah, that's a long way of saying I, I came away sort of humbled and inspired. It was a really lovely get together. Yeah, and I remember when we were you know, organizing the book and thinking about the groupings of the different papers, we thought of your chapter on Tuffy and Colleen and Tina's chapter on the grizzly bears as, as like one of, this is on the cutting room floor, but we thought about like animal biography was one area. So we thought, okay, it'll be all the chapters that deal with specific animals as individuals. And so yours and, and, and Tina and Colleen's fit really well together. So I'm glad there was some, some intersection there in terms of what you got to out of the conference. Um, Colleen, how about for you? Um, I, I think when we chatted at, at some point earlier today, you had mentioned you felt maybe you might be a little bit of an outsider in the group, but you were uh, welcomed in and, and enjoyed the experience. What drew you to, uh, to this conference in the collection? Well, first of all, it was um, just a really neat experience to collaborate with Tina and to come at talking about grizzly bears from what was a really personal experience for me of 12 years on the ground of tracking them. And then Tina's more remote experience. And we found a really nice meeting ground for that. The conference, I was inspired by the, just by all of the incredible energy that people brought to the conference. And I, I love the archives. I wanted more wildlife in the archives. Um, and, and I, at the time, I was sitting on a, a, a data set of about 15, maybe 15,000 pieces of information about wildlife mortalities in the parks and surrounding areas. And I came away feeling like my approach to my art and my science and, and bringing them together was really validated. And I've been working for the last couple of years on a piece about uh, mortalities on the Trans-Canada Highway and the CP Rail, which 
just seems to get bigger as I think it should be drawing to a close. (laughs) (laughs) So that's, that's, I think to some extent spawned by my experience at the conference. And I am so enjoying reading all the papers again in random orders. (laughs) Um, And it's taking me back to the conference, but every single paper is better than my memories of the conference. So it's, it's really wonderful to be able to pick the book up and sit here with it in my lap and have one of my cats purring and, and just enjoy the words and hear people's voices kind of remotely. Well, and Colleen, you remind me that I, I wanted to make sure listeners knew that your art does appear in the book in more than one chapter, um, so they can find more of the intersections that occurred through this uh, project. Um, Jennifer, I want to turn to you with a hard question here. Um, in your view as one of the editors, what's missing from this collection? If you could have added more um, to what's in there, what what would you have wanted to include? That is a hard question, Sean, because I, I really love the book that we made. But um, <laughs> I, I we were talking about this and I was like, well, didn't we do pretty well on the animals? Like we've got yeah, two got on insects. <laughs> this is fantastic. We don't have anything on monkeys, but we've got llamas. We've got elephants, you know, um, we've got everything from companion animals to animals that are um you know, fur bears that are hunted commercially to animals that appear in entertainment um, in various ways to animals that are that are household pets like guinea pigs um, and animals that are inscrutable like llamas or, or um, small flies, right? Wheat flies. So um, in terms of what's missing, I think we very deliberately wanted to gather up the historical scholarship around animals. So what doesn't feature here are that know, much larger body of work from the environmental humanities that is really um, also picking up this question of um, interspecies understanding and thinking about animals in, in new and creative ways, liter- literary studies, etc. Um, on the subject of insects, I'm glad that we don't have entirely just animals that are the charismatic megafauna that we identify with. There's a lot on horses in this book, but I think we've also got, you know, good representation of animals that we really feel that we don't understand well. I think we might throw horses into that category too, but um, uh, we've got some interesting species here. So um, I also, I think this, this, we have some other questions on this, but thinking about how we gathered these into different collections, into different sections of the book, um, really uh, really allowed us to highlight the diversity of both approaches, animals, and um, ways of of thinking and source materials here. So I'm curious to you, Sean, you might want to comment on that. What do you feel is missing Um, here? Well, I mean, you mentioned uh, literary studies and literary sources uh, for thinking about animals, and that's certainly a big part of um, uh, the environmental humanities and animal studies um, that's not quite as present in this text, though there's some elements of it in some of the chapters. Um, and the other I thought would would be nice to see maybe one more chapter that, that confronts more directly um, animal behavioral sciences. So I think Susan does this somewhat in the chapter on the greyhound dogs. Um, and I know in her other work on elephants, she, she has extensive discussion about, you know, trying to draw inference or insight using contemporary animal behavioral science and its limits in terms of its application to the way we read animals in the past. Do elephants in 2022 behave the same way as elephants in 1922? Do elephants have a culture that changes over time as they pass knowledge from one generation to the next the way that people do? Um, So those, those are some you know, questions that, that we don't, don't quite get into in, in, in the book. Um, but it, you know, it's pretty full as it is. Um, but in the, uh, epilogue, Harriet Ritvo, um, when we reviewed her, her epilogue, it raised some interesting, um, almost challenges to the collection itself based on the diversity of the species that are examined within it. So what, what brings together a book with chapters about guinea pigs and bees and grizzly bears and dolphins? And for me, this raised a question about the future of the field itself. Um, Does it make sense for animal history to continue to be as capacious in its definition of animal? Or should we be thinking about cetacean histories and insect histories and mammal histories 
Should we be parsing domestic and wild animals uh, from one another? We put everything together in this book. Um, and I think quite consciously we wanted to do that, um, to have you know as diverse a range of methodological approaches as we can get. But I wondered for the panelists here, uh, where you see the field going? Do you see value in thinking more specifically about the species that um, historians examine? Um, are we being too um, homogenous by grouping all historians of animals together? Um, I don't know if anybody has, has initial thoughts on that, if they wanted to jump in on the future. Jason? I, I, have, a, I have a quick one, which is, I, I think, um, you know, from my perspective, and this, this gets at uh, something Tina said earlier uh, about being a storyteller. I, I think that um, what historians can bring to animal history, regardless of how we sort of chop it up and define it, is, um, you know, it's best um, not just dialogue with with other disciplines and other forms of knowledge, um, but but really bringing our strength as storytellers in a way that um, engages and 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 brings together human and non-human histories uh, in ways that I think can be really productive and progressive um, in the way that human beings think about their relationship with nature and the environment and and sort of thinking about shared histories, um, you know you know, animal scientists do a lot of amazing work, um, but they don't necessarily tell stories well. Um, and, and, um, and so, you know, I do think, you know, for me, certainly, uh, you know, ongoing and, and more developed dialogue with, with, with biologists and, you know, oceanographers and, and such in, in, in my area, um, not just to sort of uh, draw upon them parasitically, which is what I've sometimes done, you know, in, in my work, but to really, bring um, some of my sensibilities um, as a historian to them, because, you know, I, I have, I have found when I do that, um, they're quite delighted and inspired that, 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 you know, their stories and the stories of, of, you know, individual animals or populations or uh, um, that these changes are, are put in a, in a narrative that can engage uh, broader audiences. So that's, um, that's just my sort of initial thoughts about that. Uh, Tina, you wanted to jump in here. Sure. Thoughts it's, on the future of the field? Um, yeah, well, I, I just start with an observation that Lindsay will know more about than I do. But but you know, the categorization of human and animal is one that's very culturally specific, right? And and many indigenous nations make no such distinction. That's a huge category of things of of relations that are lumped together. So that raises the question of um, uh, how how we might split that up, and so building on what Jason just said, uh, do have any of you read Ed Yong's new book, An Immense World? Because I think one and, and one way uh, that he he does he divides his book out up is something that we can think about. He doesn't he doesn't do it species by species. He does it through the senses. And his whole point is that humans are so relentlessly visual that we we value that sensibility, but other non-human animals do not perceive the world in that way. So what he's trying to do is call attention to our to humans' very, very situated and actually narrow perception of the world compared to that of other creatures. So he goes through and talks about those those um, creatures who whose primary way of engaging the, with the world is through smell, or it could mm. be through vibration, or it could be through taste. And uh, I think that intersects well with, with um, a lot of scientific work that kind of tries to get at, at animal perception and with and engages our imagina imagination, asking us to think about uh, beyond thinking about what an embodied experience of a grizzly bear might be like. You're on your force, you're this large creature, your eyes are this far apart. What would it be like if you engaged with the world um, through sound, right? Or through taste? And I think this calls on us really to. Um, to uh, flex our, our imaginative muscles and to, to really work on our storytelling um, sensibilities. And that's where I think if Ed Yong's book is, is a harbinger, I think that's where animal studies is going. And I'm wondering if we might 
as historians, take a lead from that. Oh, I like this is very interesting. I'm often quite critical of my cat for being too taste and smell centric uh, in the way that she engages with the world. <laughs> because you're relentlessly visual. <laughs> yeah. Cats um, are totally hedonistic. Absolutely. My cat licks the fridge and I often tell her like, you can tell what a fridge is by just looking at it too. <laughs> um, does anyone else have thoughts on the future of the field, Lindsay? Yeah. Um, this this question about like, you know, how, how should we divide? Do we have this catch-all category of animal history is really intriguing to me because one thing that I found in researching this chapter is how important it was to be incredibly specific mm -hmm. in order to design an analytical lens that could in some way better understand the horse's point of view. Um, and, and it occurs to me that when we talk about animals, um, as a category, we're really just saying not human animals. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, and that's really huge, right? So, so the specificity is really important. Um, but I think also we're learning more and more that history is, is an examination, not just of the human past, but of this web of overlapping relationships between nations and people and animals and land. And the more we focus on that relationality, I think the more complex our view of the past becomes and the better we understand all of, you know, to go back to that old question of agency, all of the agents who shape the past. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping the field trends more in that direction and specifically in opening up beyond just, you know, as historians, we definitely need, I, I learned I need to know a lot more animal science to write <laughs> horse history. Um, but we also need to be able to step outside, literally outside of our archives, like Sandra talks about in her chapter, mm -hmm. um, the, the actual physical experience of engaging with animals as a form of research, listening to cultures like indigenous nations who have completely different ways of thinking about relation with animals than the more Eurocentric settler view does. Um, I think that that pushes the research in really exciting directions that will be good, both in terms of our understanding of the past, but also with shaping how we engage with um, animals in the future. Yeah, that's so interesting. I never even like I didn't think of it uh, when we were writing the introduction, but you're right that the different methods that the historians in the collection use um, are very specific to their case study, but also to the species that they're dealing with. And some methods wouldn't work uh, for other animals. I'm thinking about my own chapter. And I, I do mention this that, you know, based on the sources that I'm looking at, it's almost like I'm looking at just one section of a spectrum of light, and I don't see all the other parts of it. So using um, the types of uh, records that I was using and then mapping them with GIS software will show me a lot about domestic animals um, as economic units. And that's how they were documented in the records that I was using. But not a fly will appear in any of that. <laughs> They'll just be invisible. They're like ultraviolet light. Um, so I, I think that's a really important takeaway is, is, is the diversity of the species also uh, necessitates a diversity of methods for thinking about them historically. Um, Catherine, did you want to uh, add something here? Yeah, I was, I mean, it's, this is less of a, a macro um, idea about the future of the field, but a, a very micro one, maybe perhaps um, I'm looking at like gut bacteria, like go for the very unintelligible um, creatures and you know, do something like Anna Singh's like uh, um, mushroom at the end of the world, but with like gut bacteria and uh, getting into history of medicine or whatever. And mm -hmm. I don't know how you would write that history. It would, like you're saying, it's a totally different wavelength of light um, to get at that in the archives. But um, I think go for the ones that are definitely the most non-charismatic, the ones that are most inscrutable and try to figure out how they exist. Um, the things that we really can't see even make sense of. But that, again, very micro suggestion. <laughs> And Colleen, what about for you? Well, you mentioned animal cultures, and that made me think of a couple of things. One, a word at the beginning of Lindsay's uh, essay, which was, I think, Oyate, hmm. which is about animal nations. And when I was working on, on the bears in the field, I began to realize that people watching the bears in the Bow Valley were watching very different bears compared to the ones they had just seen up in Alaska, that they were experiencing a different culture. And so the notion that these animals are nations became something that I started thinking about, not quite in the same way Lindsay expressed it in her essay, but there's a scientist at Dalhousie, 
and he's part of the, um, oh shoot, there's a big whale rescue society on, on the East Coast, Hal Whitehead, who started writing about animal cultures from a very Western scientific point of view when he was studying seabirds in the Arctic. Mm-hmm. And it's an area that has been kind of underground in the sciences for a long time, not really attended to very strongly. It's an area I'm really interested in, but I think it's an area that historians could grab onto because I suspect if we engaged with First Nations, we would find out that an understanding of animals as having cultures is endemic. Hmm. So that's just a few words here and there during this discussion took me to those, to those thoughts. Well, I think this is, this is what Jennifer and I had hoped for the most with a collection like this is to provoke discussions exactly like this about the future of the field, moving beyond the question about the agency of animals and to think more widely with more specificity and more critically about how we know their pasts, how we end up writing those stories, what sources we draw from and how we interpret them. Um, And I think that's what listeners will find uh, when they pick up a copy of Traces of the Animal Past, Methodological Challenges in Animal History from our friends at University of Calgary Press. I want to thank all of our guests here. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you, Colleen. And thank you, Tina, for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. It was really interesting. Thank you. Thanks, Sean. Nature's Past is produced in Toronto on the traditional territories of the Huron-Wendat, the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, and the Anishinaabek Nation. The current treaty holders are the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation, and the territory is subject of the Dish with One Spoon Wampum Belt Covenant, an agreement to peaceably share and care for the Great Lakes region. This show is produced with support from the Network in Canadian History and Environment. This episode was made by Jennifer Bennell, Colleen Campbell, Jason Colby, Tina Liu, Lindsay Stallones Marshall, Catherine McNair, and me, Sean Kurosh. Music for Nature's Past was licensed by Creative Commons. For details on the artists, please take a look at our show notes at niche-canada.org slash naturespast, where you can also download new episodes, subscribe to the podcast with your favorite podcast player, and leave comments. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash naturespast. You can always find out more about environmental history research in Canada from the Niche website at niche-canada.org. And if you want to support this podcast in Niche, you can make a donation at niche-canada.org support. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back soon with another episode of Nature's Past. Nature's Past.